Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus. Hiya lads, I hope you're all doing well. I'm recording this on a Monday evening actually and I've just come out of swimming with my kids and normally in the last few months we've come out and it's just so dismal and dark and freezing and everyone's got wet hair and they're knackered and it's just a fight but tonight it was bright and we walked home and it just felt so lovely. The seasons are changing. We're right into March now. And one thing that always happens in March that is significant for me is St. Patrick's Day. Now, St. Patrick's Day can be full of caricatures and overblown cliches of Ireland and Irish people. But when you're part of the Irish diaspora, I personally anyway, do love a little celebration of Irishness on Patrick's Day. I always go to the pub and have a Guinness and put on music and that kind of thing. And it always just makes me think about my own relationship to Ireland and how that's changed over the years. So I wanted to have a bit of an Irish episode this week. And my guest today is a hugely admired and successful Irish author and academic. Her name is Emma Dabry and she has two books written. Her first is called Don't Touch My Hair. It was a bestseller in the UK and Ireland. And it touches on the history and continuing significance of hair in understanding black experience. Her second book released last year is called What White People Can Do Next From Allyship to Coalition. It became one of the central texts to the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Emma is also a lecturer, a broadcaster, a kind of all-round powerhouse of a woman. And there's a lot of biographical parallels between our two lives. So both Emma and I grew up in Dublin around the same time and both of us ended up moving over to London and starting our families over here, away from our home country. But on top of those parallels, there's a very key way in which our experiences differ. And this is something that Emma has written about a lot. That is Emma's experience of blackness in the overwhelmingly white context of Dublin. It's left Emma with a more complicated relationship to her home than I have. And it's a conversation about that conversation complicated relationship with Ireland and Irishness that we're having today. We also touch on Ireland as a country, its progression, its future and the potential for change that feels really alive there at the moment. So let's get on with the conversation, shall we? We hooked it around Paddy's Day, so we started with that. I wanted to know whether this holiday, mainly famous for people getting tanked on Guinness and all these kind of boring cliches of Irish and Irishness, does it hold any significance for her? Enter the podcast, Emma Dabry. I think I recently discovered it's an American holiday. I think it was invented by Irish Americans. I might be wrong. I'm pretty certain I read that recently though. So that was, that was quite a revelation. Paddy's day. I don't know. Like when I was a teenager, it just meant just kind of a mad day of like partying. I don't think I felt any deep significance in terms of like my Irishness or my identity. I don't really think any of us did, but I think maybe when you're yeah, certainly when you're like outside of the country, when you're a migrant or an immigrant, I mean, another country, I guess maybe it takes on a different resonance. And I guess like, yes, yeah, I guess it's like an expression of your Irishness. Maybe you'll like meet up with other Irish people or do something that is seen as being like an Irish activity. <laughs> but yeah, I can't say Paddy's Day is like a massively significant <laughs> day. Yeah to me you know like my Irishness is very significant but I don't know that that necessarily expresses itself through St. Patrick's Day 
Yeah. I always get a bit like maudlin and misty eyed around Paddy's Day. I feel like I put on the pogues and like feel like, oh, this is when I should be really Irish. You know, this is when I should be really shouting about it. And sometimes I drag my friends to an Irish pub and have Guinness. But I feel like a fraud because it's like (laughs) one day a year I roll it out. Like, Well, that's interesting. I think I'm quite like a contrary person because I don't necessarily feel like that on the day. But what you're describing is me like a lot of days. Like I will literally be walking down the road listening to the Dubliners or like listening to Thin Lizzy, I know you love Thin Lizzy. Or even Thin Lizzy. Like literally, like with tears, like welling Mm. up in my eyes, like thinking about Ireland. Like, you know, I'm literally, I'm (laughs) I'm literally like that person. Like people walking past me, it's probably, were they to guess what I was listening to, often what I'm listening to and the emotions that I'm going through would probably not be like their first guess, you know? Yeah. It's that classic Irish immigrant situation, isn't it? You know, did you find that like when you left, the idea of Ireland became more, I don't know, maybe romanticised is the wrong word, but... No, I think romanticised is a good word. It did, but not initially. I think I went through like quite a process and I actually went through a lot of changes in regards to my relationship to Ireland. So I was born in Dublin, right? Yeah. And then pretty shortly pretty much immediately after that we moved to the states and I was in Atlanta for the first few years of my life mostly with like my Nigerian extended family yeah but I was also my mom was there obviously as well she's like a white Irish woman and she has been like a big she's really into music and she was really into like a lot of I guess like Irish folk music and traditional music so I really grew up kind of like immersed in Irish music but in America and I think maybe my mum was listening to it even more because she was like you know in a completely different cultural environment so maybe that's just how she, well, I don't know she was into it anyway irrespective whatever but so I grew up like learning all of these songs you know so I had this sense of Ireland of this quite like mythical kind of revolutionary like I think a lot of my kind of anti-imperialism actually comes from that early immersion in in Irish music Um, and I remember like being like wheeled out for Nigerian relatives to like sing to sing like Irish songs in Atlanta it was probably like you know very random but that really informed my my understanding of Ireland was really like kind of like through the music and storytelling and like mythology and then like moving back there and being Mm -hmm. confronted with this but you're not really, you're not really from here. You're not really Irish, you know, and that being quite an enduring kind of refrain throughout my childhood made me feel, well, fuck it. Like I'm not, you know, Mm. like I was like, I'm not going to beg. I'm not going to beg this thing. You keep telling me I'm not this thing. Okay, Mm. fine. We've established, we've established I'm not. That's, I think I was like, that's cool. Obviously it wasn't cool because it's just like, well, what am I then? And so that was a whole process Mm. of exploration. But I would say that by the time I moved to the UK, which is when I finished school to, to come to university, I was just over it. And I was really over, you know, having to kind of justify and like defend my Irishness. So I was just like, mm-hmm. fuck it. I used to be Irish. So when I moved over here, I would I felt very separate from Ireland. I didn't feel like it was somewhere I would want to go back to right. and and live. And I had like a very difficult relationship with Ireland and and Irishness. However, through the process of being Irish, 
in the UK, I came to realize how Irish I was, irrespective right. of what anybody, you know, kind so of. So rather than Ireland becoming magnetized by you leaving it, your Irishness became magnetized. Yeah. Or I reckon, or I identified it. There were lots of things, there were lots of things that I that I did or lots of my frames of reference, my sensibilities, my outlook, my humor that I thought were just, you know, were just me or were just quote unquote normal. I realized, Oh, these are very distinctively Irish, yeah. but it took being yeah. out of Ireland and being in the UK to, to really, it. to, to mm. see that. And then over the years, I feel like I had a process of, you know, reconciliation <laughs> with, with Ireland and yeah. an evolving sense of my own Irishness and of course Ireland itself also went through and has been going through so many changes mm. so that change in country it all it almost feels like it caught it caught up with me and I feel very differently about it now than I would mm. have when I left mm. yeah so you moved back to Ireland you said when you were five was it mm -hmm. and then you left when you were 18 or something yeah 19. yeah yeah Wow. So, so you only had like kind of 13 years of living like in Ireland. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but those are, those are your formative years. Those, those are, your are the formative years that years. shape you, right? Those years when you're a child make, maketh, maketh the woman. Yeah. So let's talk about change then. And for you, would you say your biggest childhood change when was that move back to Ireland? I think that was a really definitive moment. And I think like if I had stayed if I'd stayed in Atlanta, well, I'd be American. <laughs> I think I would just be, I would just be so different, you know, gosh, like so many of my experiences growing up in Ireland as a black child at a time when there was, you know, when it was just like a 99.9% .9 white country. And the experiences, there were so few people that had, um, and of course, like, I'm not the only one, although at the time it often felt like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more laterally, you know, through social media and just other things, I've connected, you know, with other people who would have been around at the same time um, with mm. similar backgrounds, but there's still like very, very few of us, you know, and I think that was a very unique experience and was extremely formative on the direction that my life took and yeah. the and my interests and the answers that I was seeking and where they led me and I think if I'd grown up you know just kind of like in a majority black city like Atlanta I would just be yeah I, I would just be very different you know mm. So, well, let's talk about what life was like in school growing up in Dublin. Like, what were your experiences then in terms of your identity and understanding who you were, trying to do that as we all were as kids? How did your blackness affect that? Yeah, it was just, um, it just seemed to be, you know, foregrounded in yeah. every exchange. I say that it, it, it's interesting to me that there were so few black people or people that were different in any in any way. 
But let, let me just yeah. kind of focus on blackness for a moment. There was pretty much like an absence of black people, but there was a right. strong presence of ideas about black people. You know, there were very kind of potent stereotypes and tropes about blackness that were, yeah, very present, very present in, in society. And I, as so many people announced to me, was the first black person that they ever met. So all of these ideas and assumptions and prejudices often that they had about black people, I got to be, I was kind of like who they tested it all out on, you know? And in school, I would say specifically in school, I had like a bad time in school and I went to like a lot of different schools and I was definitely disproportionately punished for things that other people wouldn't be. And there was very much this kind of idea of this assumption, assumptions about my behavior, you know, kind of being marked as being like badly behaved and being, yeah, just just being a problem. And Mm -hmm. at that time in Ireland, there was like a strong, most of the ideas, I guess, that existed about black people were imported were kind of stereotypes imported from the states or ideas from the missions, you know, in with the the role of the Catholic Church and the presence of the Catholic Church and how many kind of missions and priests and nuns had spent time in Nigeria, where my dad comes from, or just Africa, like more generally. And a lot of the notions about blackness seem to kind of come from there um this is also when I moved back to Ireland it was like the kind of height of like band-aid and um oh god yeah Africa was just seen you know as this place of you know famine and pestilence that was really dependent on kind of like charitable Irish people charitable white people you know going and helping these poor unfortunates so then here was one of these poor unfortunates in the country and I think I didn't demonstrate the requisite gratitude for being there. Right. That was kind of the, right. that was kind of the assumption. Like I should be very grateful that I was there, and I should just know my place and kind of put up and shut up. And I was quite outspoken. I was outspoken in school, yeah. but I certainly, you know, I think in a different environment, I actually would have been, you know, my writing, different things would have been nurtured rather than yeah. kind of demonized. Um, I remember yeah. going to Nigeria when I was about seven or eight and my Nigerian grandparents were really wealthy not that um that had any direct uh, after my, my my parents broke up and that didn't have yeah. any direct bearing on uh, my material condition but yeah, they were yeah. very wealthy and I remember coming back from a holiday there and um, we were doing like the trocar box and for mm. people who don't know what that is it's like during Lent a little cardboard box for this charity called trocar I don't know if they support... What does Trocra mean? Compassion. Compassion. So it was always kind of on the Trocra box, there'd be pictures of, you know, African babies, you know, with distended stomachs and, yeah, you know, yeah. snot on their faces. Those those images that were used kind of for the, the, the charity sector still are often, actually. So you'd have them up um, in your in your living room and um, it was collecting <laughs> collecting pennies for the black babies. You know, so again... Mm. Just the idea 
that Africa as a monolith, you know, was just this place that was in need of the charity of benevolent white people. And I remember coming back and being like, oh, I don't think they need, I don't think they need our pennies. Yeah, especially coming from Atlanta as well. But, well, like, coming from Atlanta, but also right. specifically coming back from, from Nigeria and being like, yeah. my yeah. grandparents have like, they have like a chauffeur and they have like, and they're like, <laughs> I actually had, I saw a wealth that was absent in 1980s Dublin, <laughs> particularly the part that I grew up in, you know? Yeah. So I was just like, no, 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 this doesn't, this doesn't correlate. And I remember saying it to my teacher and just being like reefed out of my classroom and just having this woman like roaring in my face about how I needed to stop making up stories. How I had this chip on my shoulder like wow. just all, all of this stuff. I was seven or eight, you know? So again, wow. just this rage, if I was to contest what the kind of dominant narratives were. Yeah, I mean, learning about your experiences of growing up in, in Dublin, like I just found it very upsetting in terms of what you had to go through. And again, eye-opening for me, who has this kind of like halcyon experience of growing up there with all fucking brothers and sisters and, you know, just never ever having to think remotely about my identity or who I was yeah and you you call it in the book this almost unspeakable isolation and I thought that was really sad (laughs) um anyway so yeah it it can't be underestimated like I was trying to think then about my school there was one black boy in my school one Asian boy Mm -hmm. that was it the entire time yeah 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 that's it. So it's not just the idea of being the only black child in a class or the only black child in a school. Well, it is that reality or one of few, but then it's it's also that kind of only black child in an entire, you know, country, as you say, yeah. one of so few. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the weight of that <laughs> subconsciously on a person must have been hard. Yeah. So I really, the Asian guy and the black guy in your school, I feel like, you know, I feel like I know their, I know their story. Like I, I I know how that must have like, obviously it's not going to be like exactly the same. I think gender plays a role as well in various other things, but I'd imagine it was not easy for them. (laughs) How was your mommy? What was it like with your mom and how did she feel about what you were going through? She was I don't know. Like, I think it's hard to understand the, um, I think it's hard to understand it if it's so outside your sphere right. of experience. Yeah. You know, she always made an effort to try and find other black people for me to for me to meet you know and she'd like take me to England to like get my take me to like Manchester or take me to London when I was older like and when she could afford it she would take me over here to like you know get my hair done and stuff because I couldn't get it done couldn't get it done in Ireland so she would make an effort and be aware of it but it was so I don't think she could really understand like the weight of it, you know? Mm. And in the book, you you kind of detail these summers that you have where you go mm. back to Atlanta mm-hmm. and it feels like such an extreme opposite of your experience in Ireland. Can you kind of talk me through that? Yeah. So basically after we went back to Ireland, so my we were in Atlanta because my dad was studying at um, Morehouse, which is a HBCU, which is a historically, yeah, yeah. historically black college. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was in like a very kind of like politicized black world, which was, again, I guess, such a contrast to like the 80s Ireland that I that I returned to. But my dad came back to Ireland before eventually, well, quite shortly afterwards, going back to Nigeria. But a lot of his family moved to Atlanta as well. 
and married Black Americans. So I have like lots of cousins that are like Nigerian and Black American. Well, they're Black American, but they have like a Nigerian parent as well. Yeah. Um, so, and I have quite a few cousins who are like very close, similar in age to me. So in my teens, I started going back to Atlanta. Um, so they were cousins that I would have kind of grown up with when I was like really young, but then I hadn't seen for years. I was estranged right. from that side of my family for a good, a good, I don't know, probably like over a decade, but we kind of were like right. reconnected. And I started going back there as a teenager. And um, I guess that was my first experience being back in a, um, you know, it's not even like a multicultural place the way London is. It's just very black, you know. And my aunt that I stayed with was actually like an aunt by marriage who I would spend every summer with. And she was like a black American woman. So I think being in her house, She taught me a lot and her mother as well, really, you know, kind of, I guess, taught me a lot about blackness and about being a black woman. And I think it's a particularly like American expression of blackness, which is actually like quite culturally different to say Nigerian, um, for instance. And obviously blackness is like we speak about blackness, but it's like super diverse. And there's so many differences, you know, within kind of black communities. But I think my kind of first immersion back in black culture was a very specifically American and kind of southern expression of blackness so that was like very that was very formative on my sense of identity but again that was quite complicated because you know when you're a teenager and there's just like so many specificities to your well there's always specificities to your culture but you know when you're a teenager like the music you're into like the slang you use like your references are so and especially in the 90s we're so localized you know so Mm. I was just going into this environment now where finally I was around people that looked like me right but again they were people were just like what like what is your accent like where are you from like just you know just like and there were it just seemed like there there was all this stuff that like I just didn't know I remember like my uncle giving me a dance lesson because he was just like what the he was just like you're a mess like you know so there were just there were just so many I I felt like really actually quite inadequate. There was all of this culture that I just didn't know. And then I remember feeling like, oh God, well, like when I'm in Ireland, these are people, when I'm in Dublin, it's funny, you know, when you're in the UK, you talk about Ireland, but when you're like in Dublin, you're like yeah. very specifically like, I'm from Dublin. You're not like, I'm Irish yeah, yeah. kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, in Dublin where I was always told that I didn't belong and I could never right. really be, but that that's the cultural world that I knew and that I was from and that had produced me. But because of race, I was never kind of allowed full access into that. And then I go into a space where my race isn't like contested and people look like me, but I don't know how to act. So I'm just, so it was just like, it was quite a lot to kind of be dealing with as a kind of like 16 year old, you know, although with that being said, I did find being in Atlanta, like really necessary, I guess, for my feelings of, yeah, it was just such an antidote to, I guess, like the kind of isolation that I, uh, alienation that I felt, that I felt in Ireland, although culturally, like it was so different, so different and not the cultural world that had produced me. Mm. 
So these are both places where you were brought as a kid. You know, on this podcast, we talk about all the different facets of change. And, and most of the changes that happen to people in their childhood are changes that happen to you rather yes. than changes you have enforced. So mm-hmm. these are places that you ended up because you had to go there for whatever circumstances. And it feels like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in each of those places, there was a different type of feeling alienated. Yeah. Or feeling like you didn't belong. Yeah. So then you take life into your own hands and you move to England. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote in the book saying, despite the relative geographic proximity of Dublin and London, they are worlds apart, particularly when it comes to black experience. So you moved to London. What was coming to London like for you as a late teen? Initially disappointing. I'm not going to lie, because I didn't want to come to London. London was like my plan B, like get out of Dodge. Like I just desperately- What was plan A? Atlanta. Right. Yeah. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to go to a college in Atlanta. So I said my dad had gone to Morehouse and then that's that's like a male college. And then it has like a sister college called Spelman, um, which is like, again, a famous kind of HBCU. So yeah, I wanted to go to Atlanta, go to this historically black female college. And then I got in, I applied, I got in, but the international fees were like, astronomical and I've seen I couldn't I couldn't afford to go so until I I spent that summer before I moved to London I spent the summer in Atlanta again and I I came back like probably like a day before I started before I started uni I was like squeezing it out and I was down on the Spelman campus and I was just like oh god but anyway so I moved to London and um yeah, so my degree was in history and African studies, so African history and African studies. And I had like, I knew it wouldn't be the same kind of, you know, campus life as in Spelman, you know, with the sororities. And I really wanted to be a cheerleader and, you know, kind of have all that kind of American college experience. And SOAS was like very different. But I had assumed that doing African studies, you know, there would be like kind of a, a robust black mm. culture there. Mm. But for the most part, it was just kind of like, like a lot of trustafarians and kind of, you know, I never even heard of a gap year before. Like, so like, yeah. I was just like, you yeah, what? Like all these people <laughs> that had taken like a year off to go to India, to go to Africa, and then had come to SOAS and just all these kind of like white hippies. And I just was not, it was just like, a. I just wasn't. And this is why even when I think when we talk about white people, you know, I'm like, there's so much diversity as well. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of brand of like kind of upper middle class white English hippie was not something I had really encountered before. And I wasn't that into it. So... So I didn't really like SOAS. And you know, everyone just go to Glastonbury, Emma. They're all there. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what? Like it's grand now. I'm just talking about my initial shock. Yeah, at, coming from Dublin. Adding, it's culture shock. And also you were experiencing culture Dublin, shock. Right? Yeah. And so yeah. everyone would be like, you know, in halls, like kind of barefoot in the courtyard, doing poi, drinking tea, like Hi-tabs. playing dr- drums. And I was just like, what the <laughs> fuck is this and I'd have friends come over from Dublin and they'd be like Jesus <laughs> state of your uni the state of your college we don't call it uni but yeah it was like it was quite a culture shock and I wasn't I wasn't that into it but then I found a whole other life outside outside mm. SOAS I always worked like while I was in university and I ended I made 
like lots of friends outside of SOAS. And I just spent the first couple of years really in like what have ne- what are now seen as like quite iconic club nights. But I, ju- I guess I just dovetailed with like a really exciting time in music. So I was just really into the kind of, yeah, R&B, hip hop and garage. Like Garage would so have been prominent then. Yeah, Garage was huge. And again, like I wasn't into, like I'd never heard anything like it. Remember I was saying yeah. like then culture was so much more localized. Mm. So the black culture that I was familiar with was, you know, Atlanta and they were not listening to garage. That was mm. like the height of crunk. Crunk being like, I guess, a precursor to trap. Trap didn't exist yet. Um, But it was all like crunk and like throwing bows. Like it was this very specific dance that people did. It was such a very different expression, Mm. expression of blackness. And then the garage scene, like the music, the way people danced to it, the way they Mm. dressed was Mm. just completely different. And Mm. again, I was just like, what is this? You know, but then I ended up through going out a lot. I ended up, you know, being kind of more familiarized with it and kind of getting into it. But like, yeah, it was again, it caught, there were just loads of culture shocks coming at me from all yeah. angles. And another one that stuck with me was how you described, and I can't remember the quote and I didn't write it down, but the, the, when you moved to England and discovered that other black people hadn't experienced the same sort of kind of individualized attacks as you had in Ireland, like they hadn't experienced the same type of racism as you. It was because I, I guess there was more of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. The only people that seemed to really have similar experiences that I met who were black and English were generally people who'd grown up, again, quite isolated. Actually, people who'd grown up even in places like Kent, in pe- people who'd grown up in very, very white places had compar- had more comparable experiences to me. People who'd grown up in London for the most part, yeah, it was just a completely different frame of reference, you know, and didn't certainly kind of my my age and certainly younger didn't seem to have that direct and explicit kind of like in your face experiences that I would have had. Obviously, obviously, you know, people that would be older than me from London, my age or maybe older, like there's a national front and like all of that kind of like Mm. extreme stuff. Mm. But for people that were younger than me and from London, they didn't seem to have that same consistently kind of in your face, interpersonal, quite extreme and explicit racism. Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about your adult change. Yeah, so um, my biggest adult change would be becoming a mother. So I have I have two young sons. So my elder one, obviously that ushered in like a bigger change because you have such a huge lifestyle change with your with your first child. But for me, it was a period of like pronounced change in different ways. It's also like, so when I was pregnant with my elder son, that's also when I stopped like chemically straightening my hair. 
and kind of went back to my natural hair. Um, and my first book is called Don't Touch My Hair. And it's all, all, not just about my relationship with hair. It's like, you know, kind of a history of, of black hair, but interwoven with kind of my relationship with my hair and what that has kind of meant. So I feel like I had a lot of disconnection from my body and myself, actually, you know, for, for a long time. And through various things, but certainly very significantly being pregnant, um, stopping that process of applying these harsh chemicals to my hair. I was kind of like reconnecting with my body, let me say. And having my first son really, really just helped my focus and just helped me kind of like reconfigure a lot of things. And I feel like the energy around me really like shifted in that whole time and I I feel like almost like transformed it just feels like such a pivotal mm. such a pivotal moment and then I also breastfed actually well both of them but the my first son obviously is my first time doing it I did it until he was two and mm. I would you know come from a background <laughs> where that's well you know Ireland has very low rates of breastfeeding oh, anyway yeah. But I would kind of come from a background where it's actually kind of looked upon, like it's quite stigmatized. Like I was never breastfed, you know, mm. that would be no, like, me neither. like, me neither. and again, it's that kind of disconnection, I think in, in, in ways is, and this is probably a whole other conversation, but like intergenerational and, you know, there's so much shame around the body and around being a woman and and so much stuff in Ireland and I think me kind of you know breaking through that to have this kind of intimate connection with my son was actually very important for for me as well as for him you know but I think that I think that really helped me as well you know and kind of that that reconnection that was needed with my own body and physicality. And it feels like you have continued that feeling of kind of trying to break down stigma when it comes to women's bodies, because, you know, on Instagram, you're always talking openly about body hair and how you (laughs) cannot be arsed to shave under your arms. And it's very powerful the way you talk about it, because I guess it kind of parallels with the way you talk about everything else in that it's very straightforward and it's very challenging. It's just like we have been brought up to live in a system where this is the rule, but it's, it's only a rule if you follow the rule and you can change the rule. <laughs> it's like when you talk about, it, I'm like, why the fuck do I shave under my arms? What have I been doing all these years? But it's that idea of kind of finally you know, becoming who you want to be and motherhood allowing you to do that. Do you think that inspired you to keep going and kind of, you know, inspired you in in, in other ways in terms of your writing and your... Yeah, Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really, I think that's a really like great question. And I, you know, as well as all the stuff around race and the kind of shame and stigma, um, yeah, there there was certainly when I was growing up, this idea that, um, you know like being black, having like a black father, there was an African father, there was like a real stigma Mm. attached to that. And there was like a, what's the word, a pathological, yeah. Yeah, it was pathologized. Yeah. You know, it was like, these are like, this is like a problem, you know? Mm. So there was all of that going on. And then all of the kind of, yeah, assumptions about black sexuality and assumptions about like the sexual availability of 
because you were like a, 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 a yeah. black woman or a woman of African descent, that was all kind of stuff that was very present <laughs> when I was growing up. But then even like, you know, outside of race, there is so much like shame, but also policing of women's bodies in Irish culture. Yeah. Um, and I just grew up really believing as it did so like so many of my friends like had eating disorders like yeah. there was so much pressure so, yeah. like so prevalent there was such there was such a um unhealthy beauty standard I feel like when um when I was growing up when we were growing up in Ireland even if you take like race out of the equation you know that sure. that pressure to just be as skinny and mm-hmm. as skinny as as possible was huge the pressure around that so I just grew up really also I remember there being kind of this narrative of like oh you're lucky okay so not when I was younger when I was younger no one thought I was pretty or attractive but that started to kind of change when I got to about 14 15 mm-hmm. I started to get like attention in a different way but I remember there being and people saying this like explicit to me oh you're lucky that you're pretty because you can you can kind of get away with being black um (laughs) wow I I have distinct memories (laughs) of this being said to me so I just felt under like inordinate pressure to look a certain way and I really felt that my status and my value as a human being was you know kind of based on my appearance and that I had to look a certain way or you know I'd be treated like even even worse so the pressure was just like really really intense and now being like somebody that you know like doesn't shave just I don't even think it's like that I don't even think it's like that big a deal but has just like Mm. rejected all of these things that would have given me, oh my God, that I was just so obsessed with like, you know, a very particular presentation of myself and a very particular and often quite oppressive um, presentation of femininity. Like to be liberated from all of that is just, um, I just can't believe I subscribed to it for so long. But then it's, it's, I live in a completely different context I don't know there's there's a lot more freedom that is available to you mm. as as an adult and yeah sure. I don't know so like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you, you've chosen to raise your children over here as have I what would it take for you to raise your kids in Ireland so I would very happily raise them in Ireland um, right and even the fact that I can say that is like evident of like a huge change not yeah. only in my relationship to Ireland but change that has occurred in Ireland like itself. And for those who don't know, what what is that change? Like how have you seen Ireland change in the last 50 years? Yeah. So there are now black and brown Irish people, you know, and obviously racism is still there. But I do also see a real commitment from lots of people to do things differently, you know, to kind of like make things, to make things better. And I also that crushing isolation that I that I I write about I'm not saying that there aren't people that are probably still in those kind of situations you know that are quite isolated but certainly in Dublin like when I go home when I bring my kids home their presence doesn't trigger any like nobody kind of gives them 
a second look, you know, and when my, when they'd be out playing with the kids where my mum lives, like there would be lots of other children who are not white, you know, of various Mm -hmm. different kind of backgrounds and mixes, or even if they are white, they're not necessarily, you know, like their parents are Polish or they're from like, even when I was growing up, if you you could be fully white, you might just have a surname that wasn't Irish and that would stand out, you know, like that, it, it was, it was so there was so little diversity of any of any type so um yeah I think those experiences you know I I still hear about people experiencing like really unacceptable levels of of racism you know and that is something that we really need to address but at the same time I do I do think they'd have a different experience to the one that I had and also I really don't want to like God, even with all of the experiences of racism that I had, right, right. there is so much that I love about and loved about growing up in Ireland, about being a teenager, about being a kid and being a teenager in Ireland, you know? And as, as I said, so much of my perspective and my worldview mm. is, is formed by that. And um, for instance, like, I just think, God, when I go home, I'm really struck by you know, I love mythology and I love folklore. And when I go home and I see how much like children's books and children's television and, you know, know, just kind of like culture for children is really informed by like our history, by our mythology, by our folklore. And it feels like magic Mm. is like, you know, very, very present. Mm. And Mm. I just think that's like incredibly, that's incredibly exciting. And then also just like, like just a sense of humor and the crack <laughs> for want of a better word yeah. is like, is on, is unparalleled. Is unparalleled. And I would, I just want, I would love my sons to grow up just like, yeah, with that resource, you know. And if we were going to zoom out on Ireland itself. And you talk about how Ireland's changed, you know, obviously it's become a diverse country. It's also, you know, publicly, you know, as a referendum, as a country voted for gay marriage, voted yeah. for abortion yeah. to be to be, to be be allowed. You know, it feels for the first time ever progressive, like there's this kind yeah. of new generation of people who are trying to make a difference and trying to kind of rush Ireland into, <laughs> into catching up with the rest of, well, the Western world. And surpass. And surpass exactly. Possibly. Be an example too. Yeah, be an be an example. Yeah, but one of the things that you wrote about Ireland and Irishness again really made me think was about how Ireland is a new country when it comes to yeah. you know having having a black community in it, and because of that, it doesn't you know yes as we know there is you know untold amounts of individual experiences of racism, but it's not quite systemic if you excuse. Mary Magdalene and the laundries and all of that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's too new to be enmeshed into the system, like the idea of racism. So what could, like, (laughs) I'm going to end with the impossible question, Ella. (laughs) But like, if we were to use Ireland as a guinea pig, like, can it exist? Like, what can Ireland do to be a a kind of utopian example of a world without racism? Uh, Over to you, Emma. (laughs) Um, something that I do see that I find like really encouraging is how many young, like black and brown Irish people like are very much like assert their, their Irishness, you know, and in a way that I don't see a 
comparably people saying, oh, yes, I'm like black and brown people here being like, yes, I am. I'm English in the same yes, that's so in true. the same way. Right. Yeah. So I think that is rich with potentiality. You know, we need to kind of like explore, explore that and like encourage it more. But I think it is. I'm so excited by, you know, kind of like young black people being like fluent Irish speakers and yeah. playing like, you know, um, Irish dancing. Yeah. And I think, yeah, just making sure that people aren't marginalized and that society like is actually inclusive and that Irish identity. Well, this is something that I always say, like, I don't I don't say that I'm half white or that I'm half Irish. I am Irish. You know, I'm just I'm an Irish woman. So Irishness is not synonymous with whiteness. Whiteness is, you know, this construction that Irish people were only Irish people even have a complicated have have had historically a complicated relationship with Irish people are racialized as white generally but Irishness yes white Irish people god yeah are are racialized as white but Irishness and whiteness shouldn't be synonymous you know and I think yeah yeah and the presence of black people and all sorts of colors of people in Ireland is going to you know hopefully make it so that young people growing up who are not white will not be made to feel like they don't belong, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Emma, you are a hero. Thank you so much. Sorry that I just landed that question on you at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to Emma Dabry there. Loved talking to her. And if you haven't read Don't Touch My Hair or What White People Can Do Next, please do go get them. They're amazing. You won't regret it. And thank you for listening. Pass this on to all the Irish people, you know, all the diaspora out there. And also anyone who's not Irish, who you just think will enjoy or be able to relate to it with regards to their own relationships with the countries that they're from. It's always so fascinating, the idea of identity when you leave the country that you're from. So next week, Scarlett Moffat started her career in the spotlight by charming the socks off everyone on Gogglebox and has since converted that charm into a budding career as a presenter and all-round personality. In Ireland, we would call her a doge. I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with Scarlett Moffat next week. Until then, take care. See ya. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.